Hear the word of our Lord from Matthew chapter 22, beginning in the 34th verse. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Hear the word of our Lord again from 1 John chapter 2, beginning in the 15th verse. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, we don't really have an update in our Tillich series. Unfortunately, given that it is Lent, I don't have the requisite time to start jumping into deep dives again. But that means that I have an opportunity... To help us understand something when it comes to theology. Now, all due diligence, let me first come out and say I am not a theologian. I don't believe there has been a legitimate, real theologian since Martin Luther, the Reformer. We just haven't had one. Since Martin Luther died, every single theologian out there has been writing commentary either agreeing or disagreeing with Luther. And there have been many theologians who made their living just rewording what Luther said and either agreeing with it or disagreeing with it. There really hasn't been a full-throated theologian ever since. And if somebody wants to say that I'm wrong because, uh, look at Calvin, Look at Spurgeon. Look at X, Y, or Z. Well, how did those guys in their tradition get their start? By disagreeing with Luther on certain key issues like baptism, election, uh, the sacraments, how all this stuff works. It really is just disagreeing with Doc Martin and then going from there as the basis for much of their theology. I will fully admit my bias here. I don't believe there has been a better theologian than Martin Luther since the end of the canon of Holy Scripture was complete. I think he surpasses Augustine. I believe that John Chrysostom would have learned at Luther's feet. I am willing to be that bold, and I don't believe that anybody has been a proper theologian since the man died. So, I am not a theologian. I am just a pastor. But at the same time, I've had to learn a lot of theology. 
even if we assume that there have been legit theologians after Luther, I've read from good theologians, I've read from bad theologians, I've attended their seminars and their lectures, I've listened to their tapes, CDs, and MP3s, I've had to read a whole lot of their stuff and write papers on everything, I'd like to think that I can tell you a couple things about theology. Every pastor should, by the way, but not every pastor is a theologian. That's not my job. That's not pastoral, that is not word and sacrament, that is theology. So when we talk about modernist theology or liberal theology, how we got here with so many churches just falling flat on their face when it comes to doing anything that honors God, whatsoever, as a pastor charged with word and sacrament, all I can do is evaluate what they are saying and the methods and justifications that they use by the word. After all, that's over half of my job. If any pastor tells you, oh yeah, it's half word, half sacrament, no, it's like 90% word. You're always in the Bible. So like a good layman should be able to do, I have to evaluate these theologians, this crowd, this gaggle of guys out there, by comparing what they are saying to what the Word of God says. Now somebody out there is going to say, well, there's a matter of hermeneutics, there's different exegetical strategies, and don't you understand there's biblical theology, there's higher criticism, there's all this stuff that they go off of that makes their stuff either legitimate or illegitimate depending on who you are. Sure. And that person might come to me and say, well, what if what they're saying is true? I'm going to tell you why it's not true. And even if it was, I'm going to tell you today why it is garbage, why it fails. We're going to talk today about why liberal theology absolutely fails. It is worthless. Utterly, totally worthless. Why? Because their motivations are not pure, nor are their actions. We read from Matthew chapter 22, in which our Lord Christ gives us two commandments. The two greatest commandments in all of the Mosaic law are, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Question for you. When should you not love God? The answer is never. You should never not love God. When should you decide to not love your neighbor as yourself? The answer is never. You should never decide to not love your neighbor as yourself. So then how often should you love God? Well, the answer is always. Always. How often should you love your neighbor as yourself? Always. You should always love your neighbor as yourself. Everything you do Everything you think, everything about you as a Christian should be about these two things. 
agape love for God with absolutely all of your being, and agape love for your neighbor comparable to the way you love yourself. And by the way, you should love yourself. We've been over that. <laughs> but I digress. This is why St. Paul writes in Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Another way of wording it, do everything as unto the Lord. It really is your number one job, if you are a theologian, to do theology in such a way that with your theology, you love God above all, and you love your neighbor as yourself. If a theologian fails to love God with his theology, his theology is worthless. If he loves God with his theology, but he does not love his neighbor as himself with his theology, then all he is doing is a spiritual exercise in maybe praising God. We hope. A theologian who fails to love God and love his neighbor with his work, with his vocation, is just engaged in pseudo-spiritual intellectual masturbation. And that's the nicest way to put it, because if this theologian is influential, and if he is seeking to be influential in a church with his theology that does not love God and does not love his neighbor, then a better comparison is poison. You are inserting something that does not belong to the church into the church to change the face of the church. Paul Tillich is very honest that that's what he wants to do. He wants the church to get with the times. He wants the church to change its theology according to the situation. He wants the church to modernize in such a fashion that it changes what it is, what it does, and what everybody in the church believes. Does such a theology love God. No, because it's not even about God in the slightest. In fact, later on, we will find out how Paul Tillich redefines the word God away from the eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, triune creator of all of the entire universe and redeemer of all mankind to something that is almost incomprehensible. He calls it the ground of all being. Paul Tillich did not care one whit about loving God with his vocation as a quote-unquote theologian. Now, did he love his neighbor? No. No, he didn't. Maybe he loved some of his friends. Maybe he loved his existentialist friends like Sartre or Camus or something like that. He certainly loved Reinhold Niebuhr, the other liberal theologian du jour during his heyday. But he didn't love his neighbor. He would have told you that he loved his neighbor. After all, how compassionate is it to tell modern man that they can be a new being in Jesus as the Christ. He would say up and down that, oh my goodness, that is giving people such relief and purpose, except that you don't actually love your neighbor 
when you just make them feel good about yourselves. You might notice that all of liberal Christianity these days is semi-nomian. What do I mean by semi-nomian? Maybe a better word would be pseudonomian for false law. These are people, these are theologians, who are perfectly fine with your sin. If the Bible says it is a sin, they are probably okay with you doing it. If you steal, well, situational ethics, it's probably best if you only steal if you're poor or if you're stealing from bad people. Situational ethics of, well, sex is perfectly fine outside of marriage, uh, so long as it's not rape. <laughs> so long as we have consent with it, that's perfectly fine. Oh my, we have to have this principle of love that we need to teach people. So, you know, the only real sin that I'm going to condemn, blanket, is uh, racism. Which only certain people can do, by the way. Um, there are some people who are merely completely incapable of it. Uh, don't worry about those people. If you do a heckin' racism, well, you're evil in all situations, and suddenly now I believe in hell. That's how these people are. Here's the problem with that. Does that love their neighbor? No, not at all. Very few of these theologians are actual antinomians against the law, where they believe that nothing is sin whatsoever. All of them would be horrified at a school shooting, especially if a white male did it. They would be terribly angry if somebody stole their car when that person didn't need it, I guess. So they're not quite antinomians. But to address antinomianism, antinomianism in theology is a complete and total failure to love your neighbor as yourself. Why? If you had a friend who was a heroin addict, they are a dope fiend. They are terribly addicted and the road that they are on is going to kill them. Do you love your neighbor by saying, you know what? You do you, man. This is your freedom in Christ. This is, uh, you know what? I'm just happy for you. Live your truth, dude. If you have a friend who is suicidal, they've got the gun in their hand. They are ready to blow their brains out. Do you go up to that friend and say, live your truth. You know, you should do what you want. That's, that's love, man. I understand the journey you're going on, and I hope to catch you on the other side of the grave, dude. Jesus says you're just going to go to heaven. That's a complete and total failure to love your neighbor. And antinomianism is exactly that. It is enabling sin and permitting further destruction in people's lives, leading them down into damnation by teaching them to sin with a high hand, a veritable orgy of mortal sin, while everybody's on the bus straight to the fires of hell. That's bad. But semi-nomianism, or pseudo-nomianism, whichever you prefer, where, well, most sins are okay, even the ones the Bible condemns, you know, if you just do it right, it's perfectly fine. That's also a failure to love your neighbor. That's telling your heroin addict friend, hey buddy, um, you're gonna die if you keep doing this. Why don't you become a lifer on methadone? Why don't you switch to a different drug? You know, I hear good things about meth. 
And I'm sure you can do meth pretty safely. Have you tried cocaine? That's what the semi-nomian does. When they say that, oh, fornication isn't a sin, human sexuality is perfectly sanctified. Same thing with homosexuality. With everything you do, let your freak flag fly so long as it's not rape. What you're telling them is, some sins are okay. Even though the Bible says all sin is going to lead you to death, but well, some, some of it is okay. You can do that. And other ones, well, no, they're not. You should be avoiding that. That's what liberal Christianity is as regards its neighbors. As regards God, well, they're all over the place in failure to love God. There are liberal theologians that demote God with open theism in the hopes that they can change God's mind about stuff. Hey, God, uh, we want Marxism. Now, you talked about personal property rights in the Ten Commandments, but you know what? We really want to abolish personal property. Can we change your mind about this? Because we're going to go ahead and deny that you're actually omniscient now. Or they deny the resurrection. What God tells you the gospel is. Christ having died for your sins and risen for your justification. They'll say, yeah, well, God, you know what? We have this scholarship that says you're wrong when you tell us that. So we're going to have to do some redefining of the gospel for you. And we're going to have to say that man came of age, okay? You have tons of churches and denominational bodies that basically refuse to love God above all and love their neighbors as themselves. Their actions and their words bear that out. But they do still have their theologians, quote-unquote, and they are doing, quote-unquote, theology. Why? While I'm sure that there are many of these individuals who just want a cushy, white-collar job where they write books and give speeches and sound smart and get six-figure salaries, there is real love in what they're doing. It's not the right kind of love. It's love that contradicts our second reading for the day. Let's go ahead and just reread this again from 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is incredibly important. Because you look at the lives of guys like Paul Tillich, and they loved the world. They loved world philosophy, like existentialism. They loved worldly politics. Tillich was an open Marxist. They loved the lusts of the flesh. Tillich and Barth and all these other guys, I mean, a lot of them had long-standing affairs, usually with a lot more than one woman. They had love. It was love for the world and for worldly things, especially with pride for a lot of these people. Sure, maybe they think of their calling as higher than just being a white-collar guy that gets invited to all the dinner parties of high society, but come on, that's a big motivation for them. 
And that's a problem. When you love the world, which is the second enemy of the Christian, we got the devil, the world, and the flesh. These are our three enemies. If you love one of the enemies of the Christian and the Christian church, well, is your worship going to be pure? Is your theology going to be any good? Is it going to love God above all? Is it going to love your neighbor as yourself? The answer is no. Of course not. So that theology that comes out of the man who loves the world is worthless. It's garbage. It will not be the truth. It will not honor God. But if you can trick enough Christians into thinking it does, well, like poison then, you've gotten into the church, you've started corrupting the churches, and very, very, very soon after, you have entire congregations all over the place that don't even appear to be Christian in the slightest. Honestly, because they're not. The poison worked its way and killed them spiritually long before the first brick was laid on the building. So liberal and modernist theologies fail. Their theologians are failures. They're not doing anything for God nor for their neighbors. It's shameful. But as I say these words, there might be a couple conservative theologians listening that are wiping the sweat off their brow going, whew, yeah, man, it's pretty bad out there, isn't it? But you know what? That's great. Well, I'm glad I'm a conservative theologian. Don't worry. You're next. We're going to talk about you next week. Amen and amen.